Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. With Rishi Jaluria. This is the interview of the day on this, folks. We're going to talk to an adult right now of the melding of all this. How do you get to NVIDIA, which Mr. Jaluria does not cover, over to the software world of Microsoft that we think we know? Rishi Jaluria out of Berkeley and Ross School, Michigan, at RBC Capital Markets, XJMP, which is a boutique firm of incredible ability. Rishi, honored you're with us uh, this morning. Okay, they're going to walk in. Two guys, five guys, and 500 engineers, and they're going to make two chips or whatever to compete with NVIDIA. Let's start with the why. Why does Microsoft, ginormous Microsoft, have to compete with NVIDIA? Yeah, and thank you so much for, for having me in the warm introduction. Um, I think there's two reasons. Number one is the unit economics. Uh, you know, we can all look at NVIDIA's gross margins and obviously the amazing ra- rally the stock has had and the revenue growth. And, and Microsoft knows that there's a lot of uh, ability to save money and bring down costs. But I think the more important factor of why they want to bring in their own chips is because there is a major GPU shortage out there. And you are in a situation where it is hard to meet demand and because of all of this, costs are prohibitively expensive for generative AI. And that can actually be a limiting factor. That's a piece I've talked to when I've had my conversations with with companies is a lot of companies want to go down the route of adopting generative AI in a big way, but the costs are what stop them. Um, By my estimates, a generative AI workload costs about uh, five times more than a traditional cloud workload. How do you bring those costs down? It starts with the hardware, and you want to bring that cost curve down to make it more useful. And ultimately, you get generative AI to become a much more prevalent technology. On a percentage basis, how NVIDIA-ish is Microsoft? Is it a 2-3% bolt-on to Nadella's ginormous company? Or can it be, out three, five years, a germane part of Microsoft? Compare the potential size of what Altman can do to the total of Microsoft. Yeah, from a broader AI perspective, this is going to be more like the cloud. Uh, and, and, you know, that that's the big thing about AI is it is that seismic technological change similar to what we saw with, with the cloud. Um, look at what happened to Microsoft when they were an on-premise company. Look at where they are as a cloud company, not just their stock price. Look at their revenue growth. Look at their profitability and look at their relevance in the technology world. And I think AI can be a similar accelerator. Um, you know, and, and, and the great thing about having Sam and Greg 
Greg and whoever else joins, if, if this is how it proceeds, and obviously this is changing by the by the hour, um, that Microsoft not only is continue to be a leader in AI, they're actually in control of their own destiny. That was, I think, one of the few knocks that people had against Microsoft is they didn't control their destiny. They were up to open AI. Now this happens kind of all internally. So this can be a major accelerator for Microsoft. And I think this can be a much bigger company as a result. Rishi, I'm still stuck on this idea that it costs about five times based on how expensive some of the hardware is for generative AI to get certain workloads done as it does the traditional means of just hiring people. Does it basically mean that NVIDIA's success, is success so far is the reason why the Microsofts of the world, the software-focused areas, have not been able to monetize AI in as material a way? I don't think it's because of the GPU shortage. I think that is one factor. And then, by the way, I would maybe push back. I think Microsoft is monetizing AI in a big way. By my estimates, AI is already a half billion dollar ARR business for Microsoft after, what, two or three quarters, which is kind of an amazing unheard of trajectory. For the rest of software, however, I think there are a couple reasons. Um, you know, Microsoft, remember, has a huge head start when it comes to generative AI. They invest in OpenAI back in 2019. A lot of other companies are playing catch up. I think a lot of enterprises are also maybe have concerns around data privacy, residency, and they just, you know, security. And that's also a limiting factor. And I think maybe lastly is a lot of companies are figuring this out. Remember, generative AI is a little bit of a uh, blank canvas and you have to figure out the right way to use it. Think about the way you and I use ChatGPT today versus what, you know, a year ago when it first got launched. Um, part of it is obviously it's gotten more powerful, but part of it is we've had to figure out what's the right prompts to ask it, what's the right way to tweak it. And, you know, with APIs, it's maybe 10 times more com complex and difficult. I think the monetization is going to come. I just think for software, it's probably a 2025 event when it starts to be material for, you know, the, the HubSpots and, and the MongoDBs of the world. Uh, but for Microsoft, I would say it is already material and rapidly going so. When you keep talking about GPU, it's a graphics processing unit, one of the key components for some of these uh, chips that are required for uh, generative AI. Do you think that Microsoft can materially get into the chip creation, the physical word world, the hardware uh, game as it ramps up to the software monetary uh, prowess? I think they can. Now, I would say they're not going to be directly selling GPUs to customers in a big way. I think it's more of a you can rent out GPU capacity via Azure, and this becomes a boost for the Azure business. That I, you know, this becomes the preferred cloud vendor to run generative AI workloads. Not only because they have, you know, the the, the best AI technology out there, including all these Azure OpenAI services that they're already monetizing, but now they're going to have more and more capacity, and and again at a competitive rate versus how things have been. So I think this is more of a unit economics for Microsoft and a boost to Azure. It's a slow day here. We got to make some news. Everybody's piling on Microsoft now. It's one big love fest. You know we're on our way to $3 trillion. I think it's 404. You're at a 390. The well-dressed Dan Ives and the rest of them are up there. Are you going to be adjusting a higher here when you see this unfold? Can we get you out over 420 on Microsoft right now? 
Uh, yeah, obviously, I can't comment on any uh, price target changes <laughs> that, that our may or may not bring. I would point you in our note, we do talk about, you know, a bull case, which would be uh, beyond that. And, you know, you can kind of draw your own conclusion. Oh, oh, come on, come on. Right Nobody's now, listening. We're among friends. What's your bull case? <laughs> Give me a number. Can you out Ives Dan Ives? Uh, look, my, my, my bull case, you know, in, in the note would be above about $400 a share. Um, I think the thing we have to say is right now I'm not modeling huge generative AI revenues uh, in my model. If we start to think about Office 365 Copilot, for example, that's all kind of gravy on top of this. And I haven't even really brought in, you know, calendar year 25, calendar year 26 numbers. Um, so, again, I, I would say you can draw a lot of conclusions based on those sort of things to get you significantly above where the stock is today. But published price target 390 bucks rishi thank you compliance is still in bed don't worry about it rishi jaluria <laughs> of rbc capital markets they wake up at about 8 30 tk seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations look to nationwide nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track nationwide is on your side nationwide investment services corporation finra member columbus ohio success is more than a destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Victoria Fernandez with his chief market strategist at Crossmark Global Investment. I have no idea how you reallocate, rebalance Victoria for next year. What's the Crossmark strategy? Yeah, well, Tom, as you know, throughout the last year, when a lot of people were trying to make the decisions of whether to be in or out of the market, for our clients, we were completely in the market, but we were being very cautious as to where we were putting our money to work. We had a lot of defensive names in our portfolio while still having a little bit of cyclical names in there. And our strategy hasn't changed tremendously. On days when the equity market is up right now, because we don't think that we're in um, this solid bull market right now, we're trimming some names and we're going in to some of the names that have pulled back. You mentioned energy. That's one area where we've been adding some um, exposure to names like ConocoPhillips. We actually are adding into healthcare too. Healthcare has been decimated, but you look at the balance sheets of some of these companies and you have a lot of um, opportunity there adding a little bit of fixed income, having a little bit of cash, using some alternatives in your portfolio like covered calls. We think this is the time when you really need to have that diversification and be ready because we think there's still quite a bit of volatility to go. Do you get uncorrelated diversification and fixed income right now versus equities? 
you know, not as much as you probably used to, but what you're going to be using your fixed income for right now is for the cash flow for, um, for our clients. So you can get a 5% yield on the short term part of the yield curve. It's an opportunity to have something a little bit better than cash, a little bit better than government agencies. You can lock that in for a short period of time and then add a little bit, Jonathan, on the longer end of the curve where you can have that longer steady cash flow over a longer period of time to help buffer any equity volatility. When you look forward, there's a real question about whether rate cuts next year are good or bad for risk. How do you think about that in, at a time when people are expecting the soft landing as the base case? So I think there is a misconception here that the Fed is going to cut in the first half of next year. If you look, Lisa, over this hiking cycle, we've already had six dovish head fakes where the market has gotten ahead of itself, assumed the Fed was going to be more dovish than it was, and they've had to price that back out of the market. I think we're seeing a little bit of that now. I don't expect the Fed to cut rates until the second half of next year. And I think it will be more because we're seeing a deterioration in the economy than it is because of inflation expectations. I mean, look at delinquencies right now. We're back up at pre-COVID levels in regards to autos, in regards to credit cards, especially in that 18 to 29 year old age group where they've got student loan debts coming as well. And as delinquencies go up at a time with very low unemployment, what does that mean for banks? It means they're going to increase their loan loss reserves. It means loan growth goes down. These are things that are going to stimmy the economy. It's going to stimmy the consumer. And I think that's where we're going to see rate cuts come in. So when you take a look at your risk appetite heading into next year, do you think that people are overly optimistic about both uh, rates coming lower and equities continuing to do well, led by the names that have done best this year? I do think there's a little bit too much optimism right now, and I'd like to be optimistic. I like to say good things are going to happen, but look, we've said for the last year, you've got to be cautious. You look at leading economic indicators down again, even coincident economic indicators are flat right now. Consumer is weakening. You've been talking about uh, Mr. McMillan's statement about deflation going on and worries about the consumer. We've heard it in the retail earnings that have come out. And I think you're going to see some right. of the things that have been propping up the equity markets like buybacks start to come back. But Victoria, you're living in Texas, the Austin boom. And the Austin boom is a broad sense is service sector in technology. How do you underweight the Magnificent Seven? It's a tough decision to make on what you do with this Magnificent Seven. Obviously, the AI tailwind to those names has been tremendous. And we assume NVIDIA is going to report good earnings, and that's going to continue then to lead that narrative and help that Magnificent Seven. You have to have exposure to these names. You do. But I just think you have to be a little bit cautious and putting all your eggs in that basket. If you have, you've done well this year, so I can't deny that. But as we assume that we're going to have a pullback in this economy and the consumer is going to come back and capital expenditures and um, spending by corporations is going to slow down, I think you have to be a little bit concerned about what those earnings look like going forward. So have your exposure. But like we said, add that diversification in other areas as well. Victoria, thank you. We've got to leave it there. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the next Happy couple of days. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. Thank you. Victoria Fernandez there of Crossmark Global Investments. 
Right now on Fixed Income, Michael Collins joins Senior Portfolio Manager, PGM Fixed Income. Michael, what is the symbolism of the inflation-adjusted 10-year yield coming in and in? I got a 2.09% print this morning. That's extraordinary. What does that mean for our viewers, our listeners? Well, as, as you know, you know, the world's discount rate, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, real yield uh, is what's driving valuations on everything in the world. And, and that real yield, Tom, at 2.1 or so is probably still 100 basis points too high. Right. I think it's supposed to be wow. somewhere between zero and two. Uh, so I think there's still room to go there. I think if you believe the real yield should be above two permanently, remember, it was at two and a half. Uh, just a few weeks ago, you're, you're buying into the notion that we're going to have this continuation of really strong, real growth in the U.S. and around the world. And it feels like that that's not in the cards. What is your x-axis to get even halfway there? That's a bold statement by you that the inflation is just a yield 2.50 down to 2.10. And it will I'm going to use this word carefully, Michael, plunge lower. What's your timeline to make that happen? You know, these things tend to happen more quickly than the markets price in, right? I mean, just a, a few weeks ago, the markets were pricing in a funds rate that ended at 4.5% and never got lower than that over the next 10 years. And now that number is 4, right? So the markets are pricing in kind of a permanent funds rate at 4. And again, that probably is 100 or, or maybe 200 basis points too high as well. And, and we do know when the Fed is done, and the Fed is done, uh, that's why the minutes today today don't matter. When they're done, rates <laughs> rates rally, right? That's the beginning of the rally in the bond market. As soon as the message is clear that the hiking cycle is over, because the markets always overshoot on the upside, and then they overshoot on the downside. So I think we just hit the overshoot at a 5% 10-year, a 2.5% uh, real yield. Uh, and now we're we're probably on the way down. I mean, rates today maybe look fair value in a, in a good world. But, you know, we, we've had disinflation, as you've all talked about this morning, and it's been driven almost solely by the supply side, the huge rebound in the supply side, both from the labor market and the productivity boost. And I worry that 2024 is going to be a demand side story. And that's the bad disinflation, right, that we're worried about. And if that plays out, if inflation ends up having one handles instead of three handles, which is which is very possible, and we're, we're kind of moving in that direction pretty quickly now, you know, who knows? Rates could be, be offsized by quite a bit. That's the worry of equity investors as well, Mike. Let's talk about bigger picture. And I'll do this for you because you're far too modest. About 10 years ago, you and a team, I'm thinking Robert Tip, Greg Peters, were really known for this call of low interest rates, low inflation, range bound yields, low and range bound. I remember the phrase. It was the, the low ranger. Now, Mike, that was 10 years ago. You guys won awards for all of that. We celebrated them on this program. A decade later... Post-pandemic, can you talk to us about this regime and how different you think it will be? I mean, certainly you're in a world right now, Jonathan, where you're seeing a, a kind of generational high in capital investment in this country in, in technology-related things. You've been talking about AI uh, all morning, right? And, and it's happening and it's real and it's increased our productivity in this country significantly over the last year. And there's a chance that that is sustainable, that this, this AI and the robotics and, and all of the technology investment does lead to more sustainably and higher real GDP in this country, let's say in the twos as opposed to in the ones. And that's a big difference. And there's also a chance that inflation, you know, doesn't fall back to one and a half, that it gets stuck 
at two and a half or three. And I think geopolitics and climate related risks and energy transition and shortages of labor around the world are all factors that could lead to stickier inflation. So, yeah, there's this big high probability scenario out there that, you know, that heck, maybe, like I said, rates are fair value here, that the funds rate bounces between three and five for the next 10 years and the 10 year bounces between three and a half and five and a half. And maybe you're in the middle of that range now. So that's a scenario that we're really contemplating very seriously uh, as, as a pretty high probability. But of course, you do have to be humble in this business. And, and that downside risk is always out there uh, lurking and, and looming. So it's something we're, we're certainly looking at. Have you gotten more conviction over the past four weeks, Michael, as the market seems to be accepting the idea of possibly more aggressive rate cuts next year? You know, uh, more conviction on, on rates, uh, maybe a, a little bit more. You know, I think the inflation side is really what's given us more uh, encouragement. The disinflation story seems to be uh, kind of embedded now. And we're not as worried about a permanently higher, you know, inflationary environment. Right. So that, that's really a, a big <clears throat> delta that we're seeing recently with goods prices in, in deflation right now, right? And services inflation is finally coming down. So, and the labor market is seeing some cracks, right? Which leads to lower wages. So all those things give us encouragement on inflation, which given us encouragement that, hey, maybe we've seen the high end rates and who knows, maybe the next move is 50 basis points lower instead of 50 basis points higher. On the yep. credit side though, you know, the markets have run with this low inflation, soft landing world and have had in the equity market, too. Right. So risk assets have rallied hard just in the last few weeks. And I think you're supposed to be really careful there and, and, and fade those rallies. Feels like a much tougher call on the credit side. Mike, thank you, sir. It's good to catch up with you. Mike Collins there of PGM Fixed Income. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Sometimes you get lucky, and we do that always with Robert Hormatz. He is of Tufts, and he's of generations of presidents. This could easily be a three-hour conversation, Ambassador Hormatz, with the Yale School of Management. So many narratives. Bob, you and I could go for three hours right now. we got about seven minutes. There's James Earl Carter, 
with Sadat from another time and place. We have a nostalgia for that moment that you lived and the success of, with Brzezinski and, and the rest that you lived. What imagery are we going to see when we extricate ourselves from this war in Gaza? Well, I think at that point, there, was, there were two interlocutors that Carter was trying to pull together and was able to do that. Now you have a much different environment. You have Hamas, you have the Israelis, the Israelis are divided. Um, Hamas is a, is a very inchoate kind of operation. You know, it's not quite clear how mm -hmm. much power the center of, of Hamas has. It's a very dispersed organization. And um, we really, with hostages, as you've correctly pointed out, you really don't know until it's actually done. Remember the movie The Bridge of Spies? Um, you know, they didn't actually know that, that the transfer was going to take place until it did. They right. arrived. Right. And I think these things are very sensitive. But what, what's very important about this is that the United States and Qatar right. have played this intermediary role, which I think is, is constructive uh, in that it gets the United States back into the game in a, in a, right. in a positive Robert way. Robert Gates, my essay of the certainly of November in Foreign Affairs magazine, it's a primal wake-up call on American diplomacy is being efficacious. You have said this for, for decades, Bob Hormans, that we can't let down our diplomacy. What does our next diplomacy look like after what we've lived the last eight or even 12 years? Well, that's the interesting point, that that is, it, during the Cold War, diplomacy was Washington-Moscow essentially. That, and, and now you've got lots of power centers. Obviously, this summit uh, with the Chinese was, I thought, a very constructive summit. And actually, I'm going to China in a week to uh, talk about what kind of progress can be made to support what was done in the California summit, but opening up new opportunities, I think, for business and for diplomacy. But talking to a number of people about how we move the very constructive process that was begun there along. But you also have a variety of new power centers that you have to have very proactive diplomacy. India is playing a greater role, particularly in the global south. Iran's a power right. in, in the region. Saudi Arabia is playing a much greater role. So you have to have uh, a, a much more agile and a much more diffused diplomacy. There are lots of power centers of different levels of power, but a lot more influential uh, countries than there uh, were in the past. Which is the reason why there was a lot of focus on China's meeting recently with Arab leaders and wondering how exactly they were navigating something that they really haven't taken a particular stance on. What did you glean from that? Well, that's a very good example of this. The Chinese really, for years, played virtually no role in the Middle East. They have a base in Djibouti, but that's sort of north and out of the, out of the, 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 the framework. It's really on the tip of Africa. Um, but they were not in, engaged in the Middle East. Then, a, a sort of a surprise, we find that they brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So it's clear that they have a new uh, positive, proactive, and I would say in that case, quite constructive um, diplomatic approach. They have very sophisticated diplomats. We shouldn't underestimate the quality of the Chinese diplomatic corps. They're very good. Um, so they're playing a greater role. And the fact that we're now uh, re-engaging or engaging in this diplomacy to help deal with the hostages with Qatar sort of shows that we're now coming back 
uh, into the game and playing a constructive role. But we're going to have to do this in a whole lot of countries because there's a lot of power centers and we're going to have to play a role if we want to play a global role in a variety of regions. The more I read, the less I feel like I know about what's going on uh, in the Middle East right now in terms of where the power centers are, who's brokering what, how, uh, you know, whether Saudi Arabia is getting more uh, sort of aggressive with Israel or not. Do you have a sense of just whether there still is this animosity between Iran and Saudi Arabia, of whether there is this move from Qatar and Egypt and others to move away from Israel? Do you have any sense of exactly how this uh, tide is shifting? It's very, it's very hard to read the tea leaves. I would say that Iran and Saudi Arabia probably still have a lot of questions about each other and a lot of suspicion, but at least they're engaging in conversation uh, in a way that they, that they weren't before. And I would say it's, it's probably true as well. I do think that the, the Sunni Arab countries in, right. the, in the region did want to have and still do want to have a close relationship with Israel. This, and one of the reasons I think Hamas did this uh, horrible thing right. is that it, it didn't like that was, that, that was going on and thought this would interrupt uh, that right. process. So I still think the underlying goal is to have a greater degree of normalcy between Israel and the, right. and the Sunni Arabs. You just celebrated your 80th birthday, and I think I can say between you and Michael Bloomberg, you are as well-preserved as anybody I know. What's the damn secret to looking this good at 80? Getting up early and coming on this show. Okay, that's the right answer. <laughs> right. I want you to talk right now about this crazy American gerontocracy that we're living right now. The president's 81, the other guy's 78. How did we get, half of Congress is 92. How did we get here, Bob Hormats? Well, the, the, you, you've asked a question with really two powerful ingredients. One is we certainly need to begin to tap um, the, the, the younger political leaders, and there are plenty of very good people um, who are in the, in the process of moving up in the political process, but the, the, the older leaders have sort of taken the oxygen away from them. They're not, they don't get to participate in a lot of the um, proactive uh, debates that are going on because, you know, you've got two leaders who are older who take a lot of that oxygen, the political oxygen, and money away. But the second point that's even bigger is we have to start thinking a lot more of the implications of what we do today uh, for the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. That particularly has to do with the budget because we're leaving our children and grandchildren with us. Well, this us. is your book from a couple of years ago. Right. When's the second edition out? And I, mean, you well, I, just redo did, it. I just did an article for Fortune magazine okay. explaining why this was a problem and what it was going to mean for Social Security, what it's going to mean for the budget for contingent liabilities, and the numbers are up and up right. and up. Who's going to pay the interest? Our children and grandchildren, we're leaving them with a burden. We're, we're, that's one, climate's another. Breaking news is getting in the way. Bob Hormatz, i got to cut you off. Thank you so much for joining us. Anne-Marie, to you, 20 seconds. Any breaking news here into the 9 o'clock hour? just that we remain very close to getting this hostage deal done. We also did hear from the Israeli Prime Minister, though, Benjamin Netanyahu, and the Israelis are tweeting that they will have a cabinet, a war cabinet meeting this evening. Stay for this and Emory Horton, Balance of Power. Look for that this evening. We say thank you to Robert Hormatz of the Yale School of Management. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in 
and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.